You're listening to The Zen Courses Show, episode 59. Welcome to The Zen Courses Show, the show for online course creators who care about building actionable, meaningful, and profitable online courses. If you're a solo entrepreneur, tech geek, or creative, The Zen Courses Show is the place to get expert advice for creating your online course, overcoming overwhelm, and growing a balanced business. To get the full experience, sign up at zencourses.co, where you'll get access to free lessons, resources, and more. Again, that's zencourses.co. Hey, hey, so this is the last episode of season two. If you have been tuning in and loving this season, I I tried to warn you, I gave you a heads up. This is going to be the last episode of season two, but we have a great episode for you. And here's your incentive to listen all the way through. If you go to the end, you can find out how you can get additional episodes during the break. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to spill it. I'm not going to spill it right now. You got to listen all the way to the end. All right, here we go. What's up, everyone? My guest today is Lisa Congdon, fine artist, author, and illustrator. Lisa also teaches online classes. She is here to share her story with us. Lisa, welcome to the Zen Courses Show. Thank you for having me, Janelle. I'm really excited to chat with you. And I think I told you this over email, but you were requested by a few listeners. And so once I did my research, I said, yes, I definitely have to have this amazing woman on the show. So let's start off with the easy stuff. Can you give us a quick overview of what you do? Well, as you mentioned, I'm an artist and an illustrator and a teacher. I also do a fair amount of public speaking, and I'm an author. I have um, I'm working on my like eighth and ninth books, yeah, right now. So, <laughs> so I do lots of different things. But I came into the world of teaching and writing and making books um, through illustration. So um, I started as an artist. Actually, it was a second career for me. I didn't start until I was in my 30s, and um, and then for the last 17 years, I've been painting and drawing. And then about 10 years ago, I started making my living at it. So, okay. Yeah. I read a little bit about your story and I can't wait to get into that a little more. Now you live in Portland, right? Yes. Only for the last two and a half years. Oh, um, okay. I'm previous to that. I lived in the Bay area, most recently in Oakland, California. All of the articles online make it seem like you're just like, you've been in Portland for like 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) That's super funny. Well, it's funny. I feel like an honorary citizen. Um, My sister has lived here for almost 20 years and my parents have lived here for a really long time Ah, as well. And so I have been coming up here um, and I've been involved in the art community here for a really long time. And, um, so in a way that's not surprising. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, it is time for the rapid five. I've got five quick questions to help listeners get to know you. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, cats or dogs? Dogs. Number two, what is your favorite song of all time? Oh gosh. Um, uh, that's really hard, but I'm going to say Barber's Adagio, which is a, a classical music piece. Okay. Number three, name your go-to comfort food. 
Um, ice cream. What you know? I gotta ask what what flavor? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, recently anything that is salty sweet, like salted caramel or anything with mm. molasses in it. Okay, we're going to take a sidebar moment, and this is not an advertisement, but if you have not had the So Delicious Cashew Salted Caramel Ice Cream, you have to run out and get it because it is okay. amazing and you will never want anything else. Okay. Okay. Done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number four, if you could have one superpower, but no one could know about it, what would it be? Uh, reading people's minds. You're the first person to say that. Okay. Number five. I mean, I say that, but then I think about it and I think that would be awfully dangerous. It would be dangerous. I should qualify that to say reading people's minds as long as I, like not constantly, but only when I sort of needed to know what they were thinking. I was about to say, you have to have a way to turn that on or off or you would just like, oh my gosh, (laughs) you'd be bombarded. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Number five, what is the hardest lesson you have learned as an entrepreneur so far? Um, you can't work all the time without burning out. Yeah. Very it's true. impossible. Very true. Okay. Well, Speaking of working all the time, I read that your previous work life, you were a teacher for 15 years, which you touched on earlier. So I am most curious about how you transitioned from that life to become an artist. What what happened? Okay. What was what was the moment? What's your story? Well, I. As you mentioned, worked in uh, public education, so I taught my first job was fourth grade. And then I moved down to like first and second grade. I taught for many years. And then I went to go work at this education nonprofit in the Bay Area in California, working in public schools. And um, I doing social justice work and um, school change work. And it was really an amazing experience to you know, I had amazing colleagues and I was doing work that really mattered to me, but there was something in my life that felt like it was missing. Um, I had never really considered myself a super creative person, but I discovered that that might be what was missing from my life. Mm. And so when I was in my early thirties, I just started doing some exploring um, taking classes and everything from like cooking to sewing to I was experimenting with quilting. I was, you know, kind of on the side, just looking for a way to feed this other part of myself that wasn't being fed at work. And um, around the same time, the internet was sort of becoming a space for creative people to share what they were doing. It's like, now that's what the internet is, you know, like there's so many creative people on the internet, people make their whole careers on the internet, including me. But I, at the beginning, it was just like, you know, a few of us on there. And, um, I joined Flickr, which feels like a really antiquated (laughs) platform now, but at the time it was like the place where you met people and you shared pictures of your work. And, um, I don't know, I just kept making stuff and I started honing in on, a few things that I really enjoyed doing. And, um, I was making collage and I was drawing and painting and my work at the time I was total beginner. It looked really different than it does now. Uh, but I really enjoyed what I was doing and I was meeting cool people. 
And after about two years of experimenting and sharing pictures of what I was making, and I also had started a blog. It's a different blog than I have now, but I started a blog. I started getting inquiries from people like, can I buy that? And would you like to have a little show in my store? You know, just small things. Yeah. But it became apparent to me that if I worked hard enough at this thing and I continued to pursue it, that maybe someday I could at least make part of my living from making art because people were responding to it. And, um, you know, all these years later, I don't know, 14 years later, here I am. But um, so it happened sort of slowly and incrementally. And then in about 2007, I left my job in the nonprofit world to make a go at being a full-time artist. Um, I also did some other creative projects on the side to supplement my income until I was, you know, making a uh, full-time income um, from my work. It took a few years, but eventually I got there in about 2010 or 11. Nice. And, so 2007, yeah. you went for it and you just yes. said, that's, that's crazy to me. So you, you weren't creating, you just had this feeling that something was missing you, but you hadn't been like a creative person. You didn't make things. You didn't draw. No. You didn't do any of that. No, I mean, I grew up in a pretty creative home. My mom, you know, I was, we were always doing creative projects and my mom is an, is definitely like, she's also kind of a late blooming artist, but she, but she, you know, she definitely feel like the creative spirit and energy was in my household. Um, like all of my siblings are, um, doing something creative in their lives. My brother does landscape design. My sister is also a photographer and a maker. Um, but we're all sort of self-taught, like none of us went to school for it. And so it was always, I think it's kind of in my blood per se. And I, I was in a relationship in my early twenties into my early thirties with, with an artist. And that relationship really was formative for me in terms of exposing me to art and design and all these things that at the time were just interesting to me. They aren't anything that I was like, Oh, I want to do this or I want to study this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think by the time I figured out that something was missing and I wanted to pursue art, um, the groundwork had been laid both by my, my parents and also then by this, you know, former relationship. And, um, and that was sort of the springboard, but no, I really, I thought of myself as really inept creatively. <laughs> um, and it took a lot of years of practice for me to, like, I think I have a really good eye for color and, and things, but it took me a long time to develop technical skill. Mm. Um, I think sometimes people sit down to draw and they think they should be able to draw like somebody's been drawing for years. And inevitably, unless you're a prodigy of which there are a handful in the world, um, but that's very rare, you have to actually learn to draw and paint and practice it over and over. Um, so I sort of understood early on that I wasn't very good, but that if I, you know, I had enough life experience to know that if I put enough energy into this thing, that I might actually get better at it. Cause I had tried that with other things in my professional life. And so, um, I think that also contributed like the fact that I was a little older by the time I got started, I had the sort of motivation and confidence to pursue this thing that I wasn't very good at in the beginning. And again, I had no aspiration to become a professional artist when I first started. This was purely like a I just want to have another dimension in my life. Like I want to express myself creatively. And I think that's what's missing from my life. And it turns out it was so much so that like once I got started, I couldn't really stop. Like <laughs> part of my house got taken over by fabric and paint supplies and stuff, you know, so. 
Yeah. I love that. I love one, just the lesson of, uh, of practicing, of committing to, to that practice and, and the craft and sharing, which is really how things begin to blossom for you. Yes, I also love, sure. I love that you talk about starting when you were older, because I think that so many people online, you know, as we age, we start to feel as if we are too old to do things. And that, mm-hmm. that phrase always grates on me because it's, you know, it, you're never too old, in my opinion, to start something. But, but I also understand how that's very real for a lot of people. They feel, oh, you know, I'm in my 40s, 50s, 60s, and whatever the case may be. And I, I can't, my time has passed. I can't, it's too late to do that. So I love that you talk about how the other side of it, you know, the beauty of being older is that, you know, you have more life experience. You kind of know what you're into, what you're not into. And um, you can put that to work for you. I think that's definitely true. It's actually the topic of my next book, which comes out in a few months. Um, I interviewed a bunch of women who, some famous, some um, not famous, who have done really incredible things at an older age, like um, started things later in life. And then I profiled a lot of women from history who were kind of late bloomers in that sense. Um, and then there are a few essays in the book by women who um, are sort of exploring the joys of getting older. And part of the reason that I made that book was that um, for me, it's been actually a super rich experience. Mm. Um, to, you know, I, I think I spent so much of my years when I was younger, I don't know, questioning my decisions and feeling insecure. And I had finally come to this place where I felt genuinely, you know, um, like not that I don't still experience (laughs) lack of confidence sometimes or insecurity. We all do like I'm completely human, but I had reached a point where, um, I, I recognized that part of my success was the wisdom that I had gained. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, totally decent artist, but I attribute a lot of my success actually to the decisions that I've made that have been, I think, more driven by my life experience and, um, my confidence or, um, how I understand that, you know, how important it is to relate to people in a certain way, um, things that I didn't understand when I was younger. And, um, and I think there's what I came to understand is that there are a lot of women out there who, had started second careers and done amazing things after the age of 40 and had done actually exceptionally well at them because of starting later in life. And I wanted to explore that and celebrate that. So, Absolutely. Cool. Well, I, I will have to make sure I, I keep tabs on your book. And uh, when's it coming out? October of 2017. Okay, perfect. All right. So when did you like... When did you decide I'm going to teach online? When did that become a thing for you? Well, it's funny. I was actually really resistant to teaching online <laughs> courses at first. Um, so about five years ago, the founder of Creative Bug, which is an online platform that I now have a, bu- a bunch of classes on, she contacted me about teaching. And I knew her through another, like I, we weren't friends, but I sort of knew her socially. And, um, the platform was super new at the time and they had no data on their success. And also I was pretty dubious about whether I had anything of value to share, (laughs) you know, whether I wanted to get in front of a camera and whether this would be a good return on my investment, you know, like teaching involves giving away knowledge or not giving away, but selling your knowledge. And you have to, I mean, that's a 
kind of a big deal. So I said, no, um, I was like, no, I'm not interested. But, you know, to her credit, she, this woman stayed after me for the next year. And by then they taped several classes with other people, including a friend of mine who's a ceramics artist. And I watched the trailer for my friend's class and I was really impressed with the quality of the footage and, and the class. So I agreed to tape one class with them as an experiment Your and foot in the water. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting, like now online classes are really ubiquitous, but about five years ago was right when they started to yeah. take off. So it was all, st- I mean, it wasn't completely new. People had been making online classes for a while, but it was still relatively new compared to today. And so, you know, I, I ended up getting hooked. So working with creative bug, um, going on four years now has been a great experience for me. And then from there, I also taped classes with one class, one big class with creative live, um, that one's a business class. Yeah. So the classes I teach on Creative Bug are all art classes. And then I have one class on Skillshare, which is also a business class. So my classes on all of those platforms have done really well. And I think part of that is I have a large online following. And so there's this way that people, you know, can just learn from me and by a, the click of a button. And that really helps. But recently, so last year, I started to think about what it would take to create some of my own content. That was exactly and, what I was going to ask you next. <laughs> offer it directly to my audience because yeah. I had all this experience with other platforms. Um, and I realized that, you know, I could potentially offer something from my own website and make 100% of the income. And I yeah. thought about this before, but then I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be really expensive to hire someone to film me. And then I thought, well, maybe I can start by just doing it myself. And maybe things will be scrappy, but, you know, um, but I'll keep it low budget just to, just to start. Like I have this mantra, it's called begin anyhow. Like yeah. you can always wait to do things in a more fancy way or in a better way, but it could take forever. And sometimes then things never happen because you never have the resources or whatever. So I just decided to start. So I started what is now called the Lisa Congdon sessions, which mm-hmm. is a class series that I currently that currently includes two video classes, one on generating ideas and one on the career path of illustration. I'm developing a couple new classes for that as well. Um, and, I, and as I said, they're pretty low budget and scrappy, but they have great information. Um, and like, I'm, I'm really like uh, offering a lot of um, like inside knowledge. And um, because I didn't pay a lot of money to produce them, which we can talk about in a second, um, I can offer them at pretty low prices. And so they've done really well for me and, and, you know, added up over time for sure. So now that you have the experience of the partnership model with Creative Bug, Skillshare, Creative Live, and now you're, you're teaching your first classes on your own, what, what are the pros and cons? What, how do they weigh for you? Well, it's interesting. So when you make classes for different platforms, um, aside from, you know, like, as opposed to making them yourself, the process is really different. Um, in the case of creative bug, you know, I go to their studio and they film me with really expensive equipment and they make me look really beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, they have a camera that sits above my hands on this desk that's perfectly styled. And then there's like a whole set behind me and, um, and it's great. Um, and creative live is sort of different, but similar. Like you go to their studio and you, they put makeup on you and you know, you're, you do all of this preparation. Same with creative 
I mean, every class requires preparation, but, um, when you tape a class for a platform in, in the form of a partnership with that platform, they have people who are there to help you with the content. So I feel really lucky in terms of, um, doing classes with platforms first before I developed my own classes. Cause I learned a lot about kind of what level of information and how, you know, to give people and how to sort of break it down yeah. so that people can digest it. And, um, and so in both cases and in Skillshare too, I have one class with them. Skillshare is a different platform. You can either submit classes yourself or sometimes Skillshare, if you're a high profile enough person, they'll, they'll come to your studio and tape a class with you and bring their own equipment and stuff. Um, but in all cases, you work with somebody who helps you decide, you know, what's the right content and breaking it down. So you're not completely on your own. And there are it, most online platform teaching platforms. There are people who are experts in online learning. So if you're new to it, that's sometimes a great way to go. If you can get in with a company like that and Often the videos are really professional. You don't pay any money up front. In fact, you get paid. So, um, you know, and the payment structures for all of them are different. Some platforms pay based on an algorithm and engagement. Some pay royalties. Some pay um, fees up front. And then you make bonuses um, based on how many of your classes sell. There are all kinds of different ways you get paid. And then you have a contract and all of that. But, um, but basically all of the, they do all of the work and pay all of the money to produce the class. And then you sit back and make money after it sells. I mean, you have to do work to promote it. And that's part of the partnership is ongoing promotion with in, in relationship to them and sometimes separate with them. And that's, so that's all really wonderful. But the big thing is you're not, you're making a percentage, right? Which you agree to up front. You're not making a hundred percent of the money. So when you tape your own classes, obviously you have to figure out how you're going to record them. If you don't have expertise in filming or you're, you know, like I just basically talking to my computer, so I don't even use a camera. Um, but at some point I may, um, graduate to that, but, um, but you might have to hire a videographer. You like, I have somebody who, um, helps me with the video editing and I have to pay that person. But aside from those expenditures, once the class goes on sale, I make a hundred percent of the profit. So that's a sort of flip side, right? You yeah. do all the work up front, but then you also make a lot of uh, the money. And in all the cases I've made a really conscious choice, um, not so once the class is launched, then it's sort of, it kind of, um, operates on its own. I, I tried once to teach an online class that was like a whole weekend and I was like in the class environment interacting with people for the whole weekend and it was the most exhausting thing I had ever done. <laughs> so I realized in the future I wanted to teach classes that were video classes that people could purchase but that I wouldn't, you know, while I'm happy to answer people's questions over email and, you know, all of that, like it was a good return on investment because I would put the class out there and then it would end up just paying me yeah. at the time. And I, the, the sort of minimum amount of work on my part afterwards. And that's been a really strategic thing on my part. Other people love the interaction with students and like love the ongoing thing, um, with folks and have online communities where people can interact with each other. I've chosen not to do that 
because I have so many other things going on in my career. Like teaching isn't my main thing. So, um, so that was another intentional choice I made. And most platforms will allow you to do that if that's the way you, you like to work. Cool. So self-paced works, works for you. That that's interesting because I don't think, you know, on the show, we do a lot of talking with, with, uh, with guests. I talk a lot about making that decision. In fact, I just had a conversation about deciding between self-paced versus um, something more blended and interactive and it being based on your learners. But it's also very true that it depends on what you can commit to as as a teacher. You know, if you can't be there and you're going to constantly be Hey, got to reschedule. I've got I've got a talk to give. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. You have to do what you can do. Right, and I think there are benefits to both kinds of classes. So, I've also taken some online classes that were sort of self-directed, right? You mm-hmm. you download the video or you go online and you follow the assignments and um if you're a disciplined person and you have are motivated to learn that thing, yeah. those things are great. Um sometimes classes where you pay more money but you get more interaction with the instructor. You can ask questions that's guided. You have interaction with the classmates. Those are also super useful. But I know as an instructor right now, now this could change, but right now I don't really have time for those things. I'm writing a couple of books. I have illustration assignments. I've got other things that I want to do. And as I mentioned earlier, like I got really, you know, like burnout happens when you take on too much work as an entrepreneur. And I'm really, um, you know, been through that and I'm trying right now to have more balance in my life. So for, for me as an instructor, this is what I can offer. And I also know that there are a lot of artists out there who offer more intensive classes and I encourage folks to go take those if they're looking for that kind of experience. But those classes are typically more expensive because you're actually paying for the person's time. Absolutely. Okay. So since you come from a teaching background, how do you approach the curriculum design, particularly for the courses you're doing yourself? How do you approach the planning and design aspect? So the first thing that I did when I decided I was going to make my own classes was, um, you know, survey my audience and ask them what they wanted to learn from me. So I actually literally, um, at the time I had an assistant and I had her, we kind of literally wrote a survey and was like a Google survey. and there's a way that Google sort of collects all the information for you and then you can analyze it. It's kind of a great tool. And so I did this survey and asked, um, you know, through my blog and Instagram, like, go to this link. And if you're interested in learning from me, tell me what you want to learn from me. Now, um, you can imagine that if I did that in an open-ended way, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would get everything under the sun. <laughs> and I realized there were some things that I either wasn't willing to teach because that was felt to me like proprietary information that I wasn't, because you got to decide when you're going to teach a class, like, what am I willing to give away? What am I willing to, to like tell people and what do I want to keep close to me? Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that was the first decision. And then I was already teaching art classes on creative bug. They have the equipment and the production um, team that, um, that I sort of needed to do that. I don't have that in my own studio. So I knew I didn't want to teach art, you know, didn't want to make create art classes, but I, I knew that I could do business and creative classes. So I, I, under that sort of umbrella, I just asked a bunch of questions in different categories about what folks might be interested in. And then we got a, the data back. So I, I recommend that people 
start with some form of data collection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you might think that something is going to be really interesting to people, <laughs> but it might not be. Um, yep. Conversely, there might be something you haven't thought of that, um, that they're interested in. So I also left a space in the survey for like, tell me your ideas. So that was, that's always the first step for me. And right now I'm still working off of the data that I collected, um, a little over a year ago when I first got this idea. Yeah. So at some point I'll probably do a new, a new survey. So, um, once I collected the data, I analyzed it, decided to start with a few classes that addressed, you know, some of the, 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 results on the survey that, that were, um, compelling. And so my process goes like this. First, I outline the topic. I decide what I'm going to teach. And it's kind of like writing, you know, it's just like you do when you're writing Mm -hmm. a research paper or a book, you know, you brainstorm the areas and the topic that it should address. And of course, as you're writing and thinking about the content, those will expand and change and shift, but you got to start somewhere. Um, and then I organize everything into a flow that makes sense. Um, and that ends up translating into separate videos around separate subtopics of whatever I'm teaching. Um, and then I write a script for the class. Like I literally like write as if this is how I'm going to say it. Now I don't read from the script, but I, but this is a way for me to, and it also ends up being the sort of, um, raw material for the PDF in the class as well. So I, I write a script, I study before I begin taping, I make an outline that I do refer to, to while I'm recording. And, um, you know, there, there end up being about between two and five videos per class, as I mentioned, all divided up into the main sections. Now, I currently, my setup is I use literally the photo booth um, <laughs> app on my, um, my Mac, and I get my computer set up in a place where the whatever's behind me is pleasing. I have a pretty cool studio. So it's usually like my artwork and books behind me. And, um, I talk into the computer and I around these different topics following the outline and, um, that all gets edited later, Mm -hmm. but, and then if I mess up, I stop and I either start over or I stop and I start, you know, cause those shorter videos can be put together later. Um, so editing is sort of similar to like if somebody were filming you and you messed up what you were saying and you had to start over. Cool. And then I have a person who works for me on a contract basis now. She used to be my assistant, but she got a, a bigger, better job, but she still freelances for me on the side. And um, she takes that footage and edits it in iMovie. Um, although we're kind of exploring some other video editing software right now. She adds slides and images where necessary. Um, and like, we talk about that in, a, in advance because visuals are really important. Like if you're just talking at people, even for five minutes, um, unless you're like talking about the most fascinating thing ever, <laughs> you know, we got to break up, break it up. And so she, um, uploads everything to the internet for me. She also takes the main points from the class and makes a downloadable PDF for students. It's not exactly a transcript of the class, but it does cover in detail everything that's covered. She, she sets up the payment system. We use eJunkie and PayPal. Um, participants get a welcome email with the login and password. Um, and then of course, before we launch, we do some test rounds to make sure everything's working properly, including the videos and that everything, you know, that when people log into the system that they're going to get every, everything's going to work well, because if it doesn't, 
prepare for a barrage of yeah, that's the worst. <laughs> bad emails. <laughs> um, we actually had one situation where we didn't watch a video the whole one of the videos in the first series I launched. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't watch it all the way through, and there was uh, a glitch that we didn't see when we previewed the video, but when we uploaded it to Vimeo, it um, there was like a a little um, like my internet connection in my studio is really slow, and so we had a little glitch, but we fixed it. And, you know, fortunately your students will always let you know if there's a problem. Absolutely. <laughs> which, is, which is both great and annoying. Um, and then everything, everything gets loaded onto my website. Like I have a page on my website. I have a website developer. He's great about like formatting everything for me and helping me, you know, get everything uploaded. And then I just hit go and um, hope for the best. So far I've had really, really good luck. Nice. That's um yeah, so that is a pretty simple setup. I love that you shared that because I think a lot of people they get scared about the technology and they think they imagine I call it the the techno monster. It's like this big monster of all these plugins and everything that they fi- feel like they have to figure out. They have to learn WordPress, they have to figure out the plugin, they have to get a payment system, have to do all this stuff. But that seems like a very simple setup. Yeah. I mean, you do obviously have to have a payment system and you right. have to have like a, a place to house your classes. But one thing I, I recommend in general as an entrepreneur is to the extent that you can afford it and to the extent that you can like save money for it um, or find people who will do trade with you or whatever, delegate or, you know, hire people to do the things that you don't know how to do yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can get really mired in like learning all of the, like I mean, creating online classes requires like 10 or 12 sub skills, right. Yeah. That are outside of the area of expertise that you're teaching, you know, <laughs> they have nothing to do with that thing. Right. Um, unless of course you're teaching a class on online classes, but like, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that you just mentioned that I mentioned, um, that I have other people do for me. Now I, some people might want to learn those things themselves. You definitely have more control when you can do everything yourself, but it also takes more time. So, um, and if you, you know, you might have to pay those people, you know, upfront, but then hopefully the class will generate enough income that it will pay for itself. And then you'll start to, to make it, make money off of it after that. So another question for you as a, as an instructor of online classes, how do you measure whether or not learning is happening in your courses? Well, um, I don't have a way to measure that right now. Um, as I said, the, um, I don't like people don't turn in assignments. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not collecting data on that yet. I have been thinking about, um, doing surveys, although I'm not even sure that a satisfaction survey or a, like, what did you learn survey is super hard um, data. And then, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, like, I think when you do a, um, a self-directed class, it's much harder to know whether your students are actually learning from the information that you're giving. And of course, some people are going to use information differently than others or actually take it and apply it. I do get a lot of, um, testimonials and emails from people. Um, and I pay close attention to all of the feedback that I get from folks, but, um, that is something that 
I don't do a lot of, um, you know, I think of it more as like, I'm writing a book that's a sort or like a, an ebook or something that's in video form and it's for sale and you can buy it and read it. Um, but it doesn't, but I'm not measuring whether people are, are actually, um, in a, in a scientific way, I'm not measuring whether people are actually using it or, or learning from it. Yeah. That's the big struggle. And I, there's this big debate of whether to do things yourself on WordPress, uh, use an LMS, a learning management system, or to use a hosted platform like a Thinkific or Teachable or Coach. And one of the benefits, I think, to going the platform route is if you are curious about those type of analytics and metrics of how people are accessing and using your content, there's tons more data in those platforms than when you're building things on WordPress. But also, right. you know, it's also the type of course you're creating. Um, I not. I spoke with uh, Jane Hamill a couple weeks ago. She's a fashion designer, out, former fashion designer here in Chicago. And she had a very similar story to you. She started teaching later. She started doing her thing later. And I asked her a similar question and she said, you know, I don't know. You know, I know I get testimonials. I know I get emails. Yep. I, I know people are taking the course, but um, it's really nebulous as far as what, what they're doing and if they're, they're learning and applying it. You know, it's interesting, um, especially with Creative Bug and to a certain extent with Skillshare. So Skillshare, people do upload their assignments and I go in periodically and give people feedback. It's not essential for instructors to do that, but I'll go log in. And, um, I was really active in the beginning when the class first launched and it's a class on professional illustration. So people are following an assignment and they're turning in, there's actually an assignment, um, creative bugs. Similarly, there's projects. And then on Instagram, there's a hashtag. And so people will upload their work. And I think of it always more as community building, but it is data collection. Like are people sort of making incredible artwork yeah. based on my instruction? And the answer is most often yes. Um, and I'm also learning that like kids are really engaging with it just as much as adults. And, um, you know, so it's not as though I'm completely absent data, especially with the, the classes that have assignments, but I've really also chosen, um, with the standalone classes I have on my own site, not to include assignments that people need to email me or turn in. So, and that's a choice I've made because of my time constraints and the, my ability to sort of engage with um, my audience. And I do think it's like something that people should think about for sure. Yeah. And make a conscious decision about it. Yeah. And there's always room to do new things later on. It's I think true. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that course creators, you know, we freak out about that first version, but it's the first version, <laughs> you know, you can, that's right. you can iterate. And if you decide to add assign assignments later on, when you have more time to do that stuff, you totally can. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's true. And like, it, it, it's true that in three years, I may add a video to a class or two because I have updated information or, um, or I want to include something that's more interactive. And I think that, um, technology is also going to change and make those things easier. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Last question before we get to our final three artists and creatives are notoriously bad at talking about money and marketing and all of that stuff. And you seem to have done pretty well 
with that, Lisa. So what advice do you have for dealing with the business side of art? Um, well, I think first of all, just not to be afraid of it, uh, and not to, and sort of, if you are a person who kind of is haunted by the starving artist myth or the, or this idea that, um, that you can't mix, um, that if somehow you're selling your work, you're selling out as an artist to really work on turning that around. Um, I mean, obviously how you sort of, um, design your career is up to you, but if you're a person who wants to make a living making art, the first step I think is to understand that that is possible and to really follow people online who, um, who are obviously successful and to sort of look at a, at a new model for that, which of which there are like thousands now. Um, the internet has really created a space for people to, teach classes, um, become, you know, launch illustration careers, monetize their work in a variety of ways. And I feel like, you know, I say a lot, last year I gave the commencement address at Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and I was trying to drive home this idea that there's never been a better time to be an artist. Because it used to be, in the old days, in order to make even a, a sort of a semblance of a living and to get client work or to get a gallery to represent you, you had to... Um, you had to sort of have a handler, right? Because you, there was no way to sort of represent yourself because there was no internet. So you had to work inside the establishment, the art establishment. You had to get an agent or a gallery to represent you. Or, um, you know, when you were first starting out, there, there, was, there was also a lot of like pavement pounding that people had to do. Um, and now the internet provides this platform for anyone with good ideas or even bad ideas for that matter, <laughs> um, to, to share their work. Now, the flip side of that is that the, the, the playing field is, is saturated. So it's leveled, which is a good thing. And it's now saturated because now, you know, everyone is like, oh, I have talent and desire and motivation to make a living as an artist. So, um, you know, I'm, I can do it on my own. I don't, you know, I can represent myself. I can like put my work out there. I don't need anyone to do it for me. Um, which means that there are more people doing it, which is, I think also intimidating for a lot of people in terms of like their ability to make money as an artist. They see all these other people doing it. Where's, where's their room for me? And that's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes, goes into sort of overcoming that. But, um, I think people really need to examine their relationship. Like I, when I first started, I definitely had some, some negative ideas about my ability to make a living as an artist. Um, and I never even went to art school where, where I think uh, ironically, a, a lot of those ideas are formed. Um, like the old school art world is like, you must suffer. It's really hard to make a living. You're going to yes. be living, you know, like a pauper. Um, if you sell your work and make money off of it, you're selling out, you know, and all of those things are total BS. And like, you know, it is really possible. Is it easy? No. And do you have to work for many years? And as, as we talked about earlier, you know, you have to get up and sit down every day and practice and be disciplined, but it is possible over time to, to make, um, make a career for yourself. Um, and you know, the great thing is that 
and I think online classes are such a great part of this, like diversifying your income is a great way to approach it. So if you're an illustrator, you might teach some illustration classes or, you know, um, figure out other ways to like engage your audience around that topic. Um, in addition to getting paid illustration work. And there are all these different ways now that the internet offers us to, to build a career where, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, if you were an illustrator, you basically did illustrations for a magazine. Now you can teach illustration. You can do illustration for online platforms. You can uh, open an Etsy shop and sell your own illustrations. You know, there's just like this, all these different ways um, to sell your work online. And it's really, it's really amazing once you start to unpack it and like peel away the layers of the onion. It just, and yep. I, I totally agree. It's so many more possibilities now. And I think that that it's, it's can be scary, but I think ultimately it should be comforting. Yes. All right. Lisa, we are down to the final three questions. The first one is an easy one. What is next for you? Anything exciting coming up? Um, well, I'm working on a class now for my Lisa Congdon sessions and on portfolio development for artists. So why having a robust portfolio is important. What, what should go in it? And this fall, I'll also have a new class launching on my site about social media, but with a twist, um, calling it purpose-driven social media. So approaching social media from the perspective of, um, like inspiring people to, um, take action on something. Um, and this fall, I'll be taping a new class with Creative Bug that will launch in January 2018. Um, and we haven't decided on a topic yet for that, but that is happening. And I'm working on a couple of books. Um, one is a kid's book that won't come out until 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is a book actually on finding your voice as an artist that comes out in 2019. And um, I have an, another book out called um, Art Inc., The Essential Guide to Building Your Career as an Artist. And it'll be in a similar vein as that, um, sort of tips for people starting out around um, developing your artistic voice, in addition to, you know, sort of as a compliment to my other book about building your artistic business. You stay busy. I do. <laughs> um, although it's funny, I'm sort of less busy than I've ever been. It sounds crazy that the timelines for all of these things that I just mentioned, they're all big projects. And I have, you know, they're pretty generous in terms of, timeline, um, both yeah. that I've given myself and that my publishers have given me. Um, so that's kind of the good news. I don't like to be rushed. That's one thing I've learned in the <laughs> last 10 years that rush just creates stress. And I, you know, I spent the first, you know, essentially eight or nine years of my career hustling. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that was an important thing for me to do at the time, but now I'm, I'm ready to sort of take it a little more slowly. Nice. Well, we'll be sure to link out to all of well, I'll try to link out to everything, but that would be that would be very long. So the highlights in the show notes. <laughs> so where can people find out more about you? Um, my website is lisacongdon.com and on Instagram, which is sort of the pla- I have a Facebook fan page as well, which you can just search for, but it's also a link to on my website. But Instagram is where I sort of hang out the most and mm-hmm. spend the most time. Um, and my username is at Lisa Congen. So I was, I was an early adopter. So I got my name. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a plus. Yeah. Uh, all right. So last question, Lisa, what's Mm -hmm. your why, why do you get up and do this work every day? Oh gosh. I, um, art 
changed my life, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. And in a way that was really profound, I was, um, as a person, as I mentioned that, you know, had a job that I, that I enjoyed, but I always felt like there was sort of a hole inside of me. And, um, when I discovered, um, creativity and art, even before I made a penny from it, it, it made me sort of feel happy in a way that nothing had. And simultaneously, when I put it out into the world and it made other people, you know, respond to it, sometimes in a happy way, sometimes with questions, whatever, like just noticing the response of other people to my work, um, also fed me in a way that was really satisfying. And that after almost 20 years has never gone away. And after 10 years in my career, it continues to be a motivation for me. I love people. I love interacting with people around my work. I love sharing my work. I love exploring new ideas. And I like inspiring other people to do the same thing. Um, and that's really what gets me out of bed every day and, and gets me going. I love it. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing so much wisdom uh, and your experience in all of this. I know everyone is going to love it. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. What an amazing way to end the season. Lisa, once again, thank you so much for sharing with us. I told you all that this was going to be a great episode. And I just, I mean, it, look, you just heard it. You just heard it. Great stuff. Lots of insight and wisdom from Lisa Congdon. If you want to check out the show notes and find out how to access some of the sites that Lisa mentioned, head over to zencourses.co slash 059 for episode 59. Once again, that is zencourses.co slash 059. And you will find the show notes with all of the links mentioned in this episode. Okay. Now I promised to tell you how you could get access to additional episodes during the break. If you don't want to wait until season three, here's what you need to do. If you've been listening, you know that the Zen Courses show is now on Patreon and I am doing something very special for Zen Courses patrons. I will be sharing video or audio, depending upon how it's recorded, of episodes that I record during the break. So if you just got to get your fix, head over to zencourses.co slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I will be sure to put a link in the show notes and contribute, support the show and get your free videos so that you can be up to speed when season three launches. Okay. It always feels so weird ending a season. Look, season three is going to start in a couple of months. Going to take a little bit of a break. As of this recording, it is summertime 2017. And, you know, things. there's things to do. Visit family, chill with loved ones, just relax, enjoy the summer, enjoy life. It's been real. 
It is that time. My name is Janelle Allen, and this has been The Zen Courses Show. I will see you next time.